Good morning. Hi, I'm Luke Proctor. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the very part-time church intern here at CTK. I'd like to thank Chuck for having me back up here to preach again. Thank you for the opportunity, but thank you also for you as a congregation for being very patient uh, with me throughout this internship. It's been a great experience so far, and Dana and I are really enjoying it. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Uh, we'll be looking specifically at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles, allow me to give you some context uh, for this passage. Jesus was what we would call an itinerant preacher, meaning that he would travel from town to town in northern Israel, and he would preach many of the same sermons, he would do many of the same type of miracles and tell the same type of parables. And as he did this, he gained extreme fame. And the Pharisees in Jerusalem were very threatened by him because they viewed him as a threat to their power. They were trying to become the religious establishment in first century Judaism. And so they would dispatch Pharisees up to northern Israel to try to entrap Jesus in a sin or a lie. And it's very similar to a modern-day political campaign where one party would send their aides to an opposition uh, party's speech, and they would try to catch him in a gaffe. Well, these Pharisees would follow Jesus around trying to catch him in a sin, catch him in a lie. So that's just something to think about as we read this passage. So starting in verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. There's a lot of directions we can go with this text because Jesus' parable teaches us about prayer and humility and justification. But I think more than anything else, this passage arrives at the heart of the gospel by teaching us a lesson about human beings and our desire to stand before God alone and be called righteous. We wish to save ourselves from sin and struggle. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are exactly how God wants them. They're made in his image, made in, for his worship, as representatives to rule over his earth. But they say that's not good enough. They coveted God's knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God, not worship God. And ever since then, there's been permanent separation between God and man. And that is a very common theme that shows up in all 66 books of the Bible and in almost every verse. Here's some examples. Abraham believed in his own plan for having a child and rebelled against God's plan for Sarah to have a child. Job's friends conclude their comforting of their stricken friend by saying, don't beat yourself up, Job. God's not being fair. Believe in yourself. And Jonah thinks he knows better than God and argues with God that Nineveh should be destroyed rather than saved. So now we come to Luke 18, where Jesus, God himself, is walking the earth. 
And in no one's surprise, people are still rebelling against God and believing in themselves. And Jesus represents these people in this parable with a Pharisee, someone who would have been outwardly religious, and supposedly they were inwardly clean. But that description is very far from this man's heart, and because of that, Jesus was teaching three things through this parable. One, self-realization is impossible. Two, humility is a changed heart, not an earned virtue. And three, justification is an indiscriminate gift, not a deserved reward. So number one, self-realization is impossible. Number two, humility is a changed heart, not an earned virtue. And number three, justification is an indiscriminate gift, not a deserved reward. So let's start with that first point, that self-realization is impossible. Check out verse 11. The Pharisee walks into the temple, the place made for man to be with God, and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, or even like this tax collector. (laughs) Wow. The first thing you notice when he says his prayer to God is that this man thinks he's never sinned. So this is a textbook case of hubris. But I want to pause and stop us right there. Because when I originally read this parable, I thought, you know, human beings may not know ourselves as best we could, but sooner or later, we can at least admit we've sinned. And even, I'll even give some people credit. They might not call it sin. They may call it mistakes or imperfections. But sooner or later, we can all admit that. That may be true on the surface, but I want to caution that thought because without God's grace and without a changed heart, we don't know the depths of our own hearts. We don't know the depths of our own sin. Scripture shows us many times that spiritual self-realization is impossible. And that is what helps us define exactly who a Pharisee is. In the New Testament, Pharisees were Jesus' main adversaries. They were haughty. They were legalistic. They were unforgiving and unmerciful. But most of all, they were hypocritical because they acted like they lived one way but were actually quite sinful. So under this definition, who is not a Pharisee? Under this definition, I would have to be a Pharisee. And if you struggle, as it says in verse 9, with believing in yourself because you're good, but treat others with content, then you are too. So I think we can all admit that every human being who's ever lived can meet that description. Now, in today's Reformed Church, you're not going to find very many people who will tell you they've never sinned. But, I think a big problem in the modern day church is this idea of selective confession. This idea of confessing small sins to avoid being vulnerable in front of others by confessing deeper or darker sins that actually, if we admit it to ourselves, everyone struggles with. So, here's a quick example. This actually happened. A friend of mine joined a small group at a church far away from CTK. It wasn't CTK. Uh, And the point of the small group was to be vulnerable before others, grow in grace. And after many sessions, while he was attending, that had not happened. And finally, one person uh, leans forward in in this guy's living room, leans forward in his chair and says, I have a major confession to make. The whole room went silent. And he said, the other night we had chocolate cake for dessert. And I had a slice of chocolate cake. And around 1 o'clock in the morning, I was still hungry. So I snuck down to the kitchen and got a second slice of chocolate cake. That was his actual confession. That actually happened. And 
it's like this guy was saying, thank you, God, that all I do is struggle with eating a second slice of chocolate cake. But we all roll, we want to roll our eyes at that story, and we want to roll our eyes at the, at the Pharisee in this parable. But I think we practice selective confession more than we like to confess. So the Pharisee is just taking selective confession to an extreme. The first thing he does in his prayer is he lists all the sins he does not commit. For the sake of the sermon, we'll call them nonsense, which sounds like nonsense, because that's an accurate description of his hubris. The first non-sin is he tells God he's not an extortioner. Extortion is threatening someone in the case they won't give you something in return. It's putting someone on the hook because they're indebted to you. And the Pharisee in this parable is putting God on the hook. He's saying, thank you, God, for the righteousness you do through me. The Pharisee believes that God needs him to do good works. J.I. Packer refers to this in his book, Knowing God, as a spiritual impotence of man. He says, man is tainted by the belief that we can repair our own relationship with God by putting God in a position where he cannot say no. The Pharisee is demanding God view him as righteous, because God needs him to do good works. He's saying, who else is going to do these good works for you, God? These people around here aren't going to do it, and this tax collector over here sure isn't going to do it. You need me. Look at the next nonsense. He says, God, I'm not unjust. I'm not unrighteous. He's telling God he's perfect. Genesis 3 introduces us to this idea of original sin. And David talks a lot about original sin in the Psalms. Paul, in Romans 3, compiles an entire list of Old Testament verses that can be summarized as saying, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you would think a leader in the Jewish religion would be able to recognize original sin, but I want to pause this here again. Because human beings, not just this Pharisee, can't imagine anything negative being leveled against us. We have a very hard time examining our own hearts. The next on sin he insists he doesn't commit is adultery. But we know from our own experiences that the moment our hearts turn away from God to our idol and we worship ourselves or we worship something else, we're committing spiritual adultery against God. That's another common theme of the Old Testament. In the book of Hosea, God portrays the people of Israel as an unfaithful wife that he is still pursuing. But again, the Pharisee doesn't recognize this. He doesn't understand that his own heart has turned to his idol, himself, away from his beneficiary, the one true God. So after listing his non-sins, the Pharisee now turns to his good works. And this is interesting because he names two things God does not require of him for salvation. He says, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. He's seeking some kind of spiritual extra credit. He doesn't mention repentance or faith. He thinks he only needs obedience. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees that are surrounding him listening to this parable that if you keep all the laws and commandments, you've only done what is required of you. And that's going to infuriate the Pharisees because they believe that what they say, what they do, their good works increase their value before God. But there's wonderful news in this idea of the impossibility of self-realization. We as human beings tend to judge ourselves by what we say and what we do. We eat a healthy meal and we go work out. We feel good about ourselves. 
We eat an unhealthy meal and we sit on the couch. We feel bad about ourselves. And I'm not disregarding taking care of yourself. And I'm a, is Scott Warman here, our resident power lifter? He could, tell you, he could tell you that exercise and what you eat matters. But we do, as human beings, uh, tend to judge ourselves based on external factors. But let me be crystal clear. God does not operate in that way. He doesn't love you more because you do your quiet time. He doesn't love you less on days you do skip reading his word. Don't get me wrong, communion with him through prayer and reading his word will give us good communication with him. But make no mistake, God never is up there increasing or decreasing your value as a human being. That was set before the foundation of the world. And though that might be hard to grasp, the God of the Bible is sovereign enough to do that. And he's promised us he's done that. So when bragging about how he hasn't sinned, and he's gone above and beyond the law, the Pharisee is missing this pretty important point. He's not praying to God at all. He's putting all of his faith in himself and his own righteousness. And Jesus understands that. He understands our hearts. He lived in our human condition. He had a mind like ours. He experienced pain. He experienced emotion. He experienced life as we know it. And he offers a better path. And that's where we get to the second point, that humility is a changed heart, not an earned virtue. Jesus concludes this parable by saying that he who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But how are we humble? When you pray or think about your relationship with God, what comes to your mind? Do you list the good things you do for him? Do you worry about your faith on your bad days? Are you secure in your faith in your, what you describe as your good days? I can be susceptible to that. And it means I'm creeping down this road towards self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is the most dangerous road you can ever be on because if you're not perfect and you worship yourself... You'll become angry and jealous and disappointed and eventually depressed. And if you think you're perfect, you're living in a false reality. So, that's David Foster Wallace was a successful author, and in my opinion, one of the most, one of the smartest people to ever live in the 20th century. But he was incapacitated for his entire life by depression. But his affliction made him super aware of the idea of worship. Listen to what he says about worship. This is a long quote. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid a fraud always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world of And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and the craving of self. 
I love how Wallace calls self-righteousness our default setting. It's hard to admit to ourselves, but he's absolutely right. Because that forces us to positively compare ourselves to others before God. Just like the Pharisee when he says, God, I am not like that tax collector over there. A heart not changed by the gospel will be hard as a rock. We meet someone who is not a believer, and we'll call them ignorant and stupid. We meet someone who struggles with a different set of sins than ours. We'll automatically assume that their sins are worse. A hard heart will go beyond disagreements. Have you ever met someone with a different set of views than you of ruining your workplace? Or a different set of views than you of ruining your country? Or a different set of views than you of ruining your life? We will want to read passages like in Romans 1 and Romans 3 and think, look at all the evil out there. There's some bad people out there. So how are we humbled? when we see pushing others down as a necessity to make us feel complete and accomplished? How are you humbled if you're in a job where you're ranked against your peers? How are you humbled when you're just one of many siblings in a very large family? Jesus answers these questions with a tax collector who has an entirely different approach than the Pharisee. As many of you know, tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. They collected taxes for King Herod, who ruled Israel for what Rome wanted, not what was best for the Jewish people. And they were accused of skimming off the top, extorting the Jews. So their combination to work for the government and steal from their own people forced them to be outcasts in Jewish society. And when you read several passages in the Gospels, they're grouped with prostitutes and sinners because they had to hang out with people of similar reputations. So who do you think of, or who do we think of, as a modern-day tax collector. I know we're all welcoming, and we know how the parable ends, but trust Jesus' intent to use a, par- to use a Pharisee and tax collector in the parable. His choice to make the tax collector the protagonist in this parable would have been extremely offensive to first-century Jews, but he did it to show that, A, anyone can approach God, and B, anyone can ask God for forgiveness. So imagine Jesus holding up as an example of faith the person you hate the most. So picture that person as we read verses 13 and 14 again. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Look at the tax collector's posture. He understands his sin. He can't even look up at God, and he's actually beating himself up, saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He's beyond self-righteousness and has given up self-worship. He knows the depths of his sin. He knows his default setting. Yet he's able to walk into the temple and ask God for forgiveness. He's able to see his sin because he's humbled about who he is. This doesn't come from theological knowledge. This doesn't come from magic or meditation. This humility comes from a changed heart. And the changed heart changes everything about us. We simply respond to God's grace rather than think we're producing good works ourselves. We see people who aren't believers or people who annoy us as human beings 
in need of the gospel rather than in need of our condescension or hate. We recognize that, as Wallace said, our default setting is to worship ourselves. So we counterbalance that by consciously reading God's word and praying. In other words, we imitate Jesus. We get to know him. This is a man who left his glorious home and lived here with us in complete and utter poverty of every kind. Just look at the night before he was crucified when he washes his disciples' feet. Judas is called the betrayer, but all these men are going to betray him that night. They fall asleep when he needs fellowship the most. They flee when he's arrested. They watch from a distance as he's crucified, if they even watched it all. And they hid and fell into depression when he was buried because they didn't believe him when he said he would raise in three days. And yet, knowing all this, he washes their feet. Jesus' humility was not generated from the default setting of the human heart. It is a trait that is compelled out of sacrificial love. And that's where we come to our final point. Justification is an indiscriminate gift, not a deserved reward. Look at the phrasing again that Jesus uses. It's a tax collector who went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Justified. When we see that word, we should rejoice. Because this is a distinction between the Jesus you and I worship, the creator of the world, our savior, and Jesus, the philosopher, who taught us the golden rule. Because this is a man who has captivated a nation through healing and preaching, but now he's claiming to know who is justified and who is not. Passages like this are why you and I have such a high view of the Gospels. He's telling the people around him, they're not God's people by birth anymore. They're not God's people by what they say or what they do. They're not God's people by their good works. Remember what he tells Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again. I often read the Gospels and think, wow, Jesus was very harsh on the Pharisees. In one passage, he tells a group of Pharisees that they're a brood of vipers. That sounds harsh. But if you're a Pharisee like me and you want to become justified like the tax collector, don't lose heart. Because this is a warning. This parable is a warning that Jesus saw the Pharisees' hearts and he cared enough about them to teach them the actual gospel. And here's proof. Who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament? Paul, a former Pharisee. And this is what Paul says in Romans 3, 21 through 26. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as appropriation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
That's an absolutely incredible passage that displays the power of the gospel in the life of an individual person. Because Paul is a former Pharisee. And now, he writes that verse as the church's preeminent theologian and writer. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. We as Pharisees and tax collectors can be equally thankful for the gracious work and example of Jesus. Because when Jesus prayed to God, or when he spoke, he didn't say, God, thank you that I'm not unjust. Thank you that I'm not an extortioner. Thank you that I'm not like that tax collector or these terrible creations of yours. He did the exact opposite. He said, God, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He said, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood, poured out for you. He sees our sinful condition and had, did not have to do anything about it. And instead, he does everything about it. In the context of his death, Jesus is pleading with us in this parable to cease our self-exaltation. Because it's his work on the cross that allows us to bow our heads and be in God's presence. It's his work on the cross that allows us to address the creator of the universe by simply saying, Dear Father. And it's his work on the cross that allows us to humbly proclaim, Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are humbled to come before you today and privileged to read this parable about your son who sacrificed so much so that we would receive his free grace. And I thank you so much for the opportunity to study this text today. And I pray that you'll be with each of us this week, that in the back of the minds we'll know that our default setting is to worship ourselves. But your son changed that by changing our hearts. Amen.